Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. What does it mean to be blessed in our society? Hashtag blessed. How many times have you guys heard that the last couple of years, two or three years? It's certainly thrown around a lot these days. Hashtag blessed. But what does it mean? In our society, it tends to mean maybe being affluent, maybe being successful, maybe being upwardly mobile, maybe being favored by the world. Being blessed, as the world understands it, tends to focus on present rewards and current comforts. Well, this morning, we're going to compare and contrast how the world defines being blessed and how the Lord defines it, as we see in Luke 6, 17 to 26, which you just heard. If you want to get ahead of me, you can go ahead and flip there in your Bibles. I think this is an enlightening comparison. You might find some surprises here. Uh, Luke 6, 17 to 26. This is parallel to the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the Beatitudes section. You, you might have heard the, the strong echoes there, but Luke is, or the, the account in Matthew is far more extensive. So these are probably were given on two different occasions, given the differences. No doubt Jesus taught more than once on a given topic to different crowds at each time. We need that repetition, don't we, all of us? But these two passages do have some striking similarities, and I happen to find Luke's section here to be more truncated, more punchy, and it's a bit more potent. It's got some punch to it. Now, immediately preceding our passage, Jesus is in the habit of retreating to lonely places in the mountaintops to do what? To pray and to commune with God the Father, to recharge, to reorient, to receive strength and wisdom, all these things. And that's what he's done immediately before our passage. But that's not all he's done. His process of prayer and communion with God the Father precedes the selection of the 12 apostles here. So the 12 are chosen. So this is kind of a big deal, I would say. And having done all that, having been filled up, having chosen, so there's a good biblical pattern here that we can see. You commune first and you minister second. That's really good uh, advice for uh, ministers especially. After spending time with the Lord and the apostles on the mountain, he descends to meet the multitudes, and to deliver the ethics of his kingdom, the law of the new covenant. It reminds me of Moses. Remember in Exodus 19, Moses and the elders descend from Mount Sinai, and the people are waiting there to hear from the Lord. So I think there's a little bit of a hint here, a mosaic echo. And he's given the apostles no explicit instructions on their newly received commission. At least, if he did, the text doesn't detail it for us. So consider our passage, their first moment of instruction, their baptism by fire. Listen, apostles, here's the life I've consecrated you into. Here's what I've consecrated you for. The disciples being named as apostles here is prologue. Now comes the meat of the real teaching on discipleship. Okay, now that's backstory to our passage, Luke 6, 17 to 26. It says he came down from the mountain with the apostles and he stood on a level place Uh, This can refer to a plateau area and a mountainous terrain. So probably what it means is that Jesus descends from the mountain and finds some sort of a plateau area on his way down the mountain, thus serving as like a natural amphitheater to preach. Uh, The phrase level place is really interesting. And here's perhaps why Luke draws our attention to it. A level place can be symbolic or can refer, refer to former places of idolatry or suffering or mourning brought on by sinful activity. The Old Testament prophets are really strong on this this theme in Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Habakkuk, Zechariah. So Jesus, get get the meaning here, Jesus teaches in the midst of a level, i.e. a worldly place. So maybe he's sanctifying something here. Maybe he's taking something unclean 
and making it clean. So some of the great prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel foresaw God renewing and redeeming the level places, those former places of infamy. The glory of God would be revealed there. This is a picture of God's redeeming plan, I think. It's a little hint for us. While standing in a broken world, i.e. on the level places, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. So this is restorative. This is redemptive. And it says in verses 17 and 18 that he is met by a great crowd who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Now, this is a massive crowd. We don't know how big, but we can guess that it's probably hundreds of people. It might be thousands. We don't really know. But it's probably hundreds of people. Many have traveled, notice, from great distances to see Jesus. They came from faraway places. It says as far south as Jerusalem and as far north as Tyre and Sidon. Now, I'm not going to quiz you on your, your biblical geography, but that is some distance, okay? They've traveled long and far to seek out Jesus. And Jesus says he heals those who are plagued by diseases and evil spirits. Now, healing, as I mentioned before, often occurs in the Gospels as like a validating sign of the kingdom of God. And we get the sense from this passage that the mood here is, is pretty electric. It's pretty charged with anticipation and wonder. Think of this. All these healings, these exorcisms, this precedes Jesus even saying one word in terms of preaching. But preach he does. Preach he does. Verse 20 uh, says that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And it, it notes this before it talks about the content of his message. And I think Luke means to draw our attention to something important here. While Jesus is speaking to the crowds at large, certainly, he focuses and directs his comments to his disciples, which is a pretty small portion of the crowd. These words apply particularly to those who would follow him with their whole hearts. Okay? Those who have ears, let them hear. It's that kind, of, that kind of thing. Jesus, I think, in a sense, is scattering out seed in hopes that some will take root. So if you're going to be my disciples, pay close attention to the shape of your new life in my kingdom. New covenant ethics, new covenant law. And Jesus, you wonder if I'm going to get to it, I am. <laughs> and Jesus begins. <clears throat> he thunders like an Old Testament prophet. I mean, there's such authority in his words here. He spells out some of the ethics of his kingdom in the form of blessings and woes. Okay, Blessings and woes. The four blessings are followed by four parallel woes. If you look there, you can notice that they match up. And I'm going to put them side by side for us uh, here this morning, pull from the different verses so you can hear them together, okay? So that's how we're going to look at these. So four blessings, four parallel woes that speak to two different kingdoms. Mm. Pardon me, I'm just kind of parched this morning. <clears throat> the kingdom of God and that's those that are the blessed are section and the kingdom of the world. Woe unto. Okay, so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. We're going to see these go back and forth and back and forth and kind of battle it out. So let's go through these. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each of these because, frankly, they're fairly straightforward. Okay, but number one, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matching it up with the woe. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, you could almost render this first blessing as blessed are those who live close to the bone, for their very subsistence and their very reward is God. That's my Eugene Peterson rendering, personal rendering. Uh, they're poor. They're without resources. They must rely on God, okay? 
for they have nothing of their own on which to rely. They live close to the bone. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, the poor are often equated with the pious, especially in the Psalms. It's interesting. And God does seem to have a soft spot for the poor, doesn't he? Isn't there a certain preference in the Scriptures for the poor that God has? Have you noticed that before? It's written all throughout the Scriptures. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, okay? That's the poor. Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But woe to the rich. Woe to the financially insulated. Woe to the self-reliant. Their consolation is only seen here as temporal, right? The pleasure they get from their riches is only right here and right now. And as the scriptures warn us, riches can deceive us into thinking that we're truly self-sufficient, that we have no need of God. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus will thunder later in Luke 18. Because wealth predisposes us to think that we have no need of God. Okay? First blessing and woe. Second blessing and woe. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But woe to you who are full now, for you will or you shall be hungry. Really similar to the first one, isn't it? The issue here is still those that live close to the bone and those who don't. But to hunger now in the present means that you shall or will be satisfied in the future. This is a promise here. We can safely assume it's an eternal assurance about the great hereafter, about heaven. Okay, There's a lot of heaven and hell language here, even though Jesus doesn't explicitly say that. But here's the woe. If you're full now, and I call it fat and happy, uh, if you're full now, if you're fat and happy, your reward is only this present moment, only this present uh, season. In the future, you might experience real hunger. You shall perhaps even finally hunger and thirst for God himself, but you'll have realized it too late if you wait too long. Again, eternal realities, eternal consequences, if God is your stomach and you have no vision beyond this present life. Okay? Second one, blessing. Three, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall Mourn and weep. Blessed are the weeping ones for my name's sake, for they shall find laughter. This veil of tears, you recognize that phrase as the old saying goes? Reminds me a lot, this uh, blessing and woe reminds me a lot of Psalm 126. I'm going to give you a little line from that. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with joy, carrying the sheaves, the harvest, with them. This is suffering for God's sake in the present. But in the future will come laughter. Joy comes in the morning, as the scriptures say. But woe to those who only have temporal happiness tied to this world and to what it offers. For in the end, again, in the future, they will regret that they never knew or followed Jesus. Again, eternal ramifications about the afterlife. Let me read you a quote from one author that talks about this. A, a comment must be made about you that laugh now. Obviously, Jesus is not objecting to laughter as such, right? His whole ministry was a protest against that killjoy attitude. He enjoyed life and must have laughed often. So with the disciples. But there is a laughter that is an expression of superficiality, i.e., the carefree expression of contentment with the success of only the present. It is this shallow merriment that will give way to mourning and weeping. Okay, again. Present realities, eternal realities. We're playing off these. Okay, that was three. Number four, 
This one's a bit longer. Jesus expounds here quite a bit. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you or spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Okay. Mm. The next unexpected blessing here is for the persecuted. The persecuted. Blessed are you when people hate you, underscore, for all the right reasons. Blessed are you when people hate you for all the right reasons. And what that means is on account of me, on account of the Son of Man. This isn't by your own foolishness, right? We can suffer for a lot of reasons, because of the brokenness of the world, because of something foolish we did, because someone else has acted against us in evil but doesn't have something to do with Jesus. Uh, We can suffer in all sorts of ways, right? But this is saying, uh, take heart, this isn't new. This is suffering on my account, suffering because of me. True prophets and their message were also reviled because they challenged the status quo of the world and its ways. So take heart, this isn't new, okay? This is an ancient old story. But woe to you people pleasers, those unwilling to be scorned for my name's sake. When all men speak well of you, Folks, this simply doesn't happen without some sacrifice of principles. It just doesn't. So people who do anything to keep the peace, oh, bear, bear, he lay low, right? Or to keep the gravy train rolling for themselves. This is what this is talking about. The same was true for the false prophets who spoke what people wanted to hear. As the scriptures say, people loved having their ears tickled, and the, the false prophets did this. Now, that is just a brief overview of blessings and woes, right? These blessings and woes are disruptive, are they not? I mean, they're very punchy and they're potent. They're meant to make us a little bit, frankly, uncomfortable. Jesus begs us to ask this question as we're listening to this. Who, me? Who, me? Am I blessed? Do I fit that category or am I in woe? He doesn't offer a middle ground here, does he? He says one or the other is the ease of which Jesus speaks because I am too much with the world. Is this ease which Jesus speaks of because I'm too much with the world, too much in the present? Or am I blessed, though embattled, because I'm following him with the whole of my life? Okay. This is the great reversal here. We've talked about this ad nauseum, but it always bears repeating. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. The great reversal. Jesus shows us that what the world values is, in fact, backwards. It's not the other way around. We're not the backwards ones. The kingdom of God isn't the backward ones. It's the world. So hashtag blessed couldn't be more misconstrued or more misappropriated, big time. Where the Lord says, woe unto you, the world instead offers admiration and praise, right? Everything the world looks down upon, Jesus exalts. Everything the world admires and affirms, Jesus projects. These parallel blessings and woes are all about those topsy-turvy, upside-down values of the kingdom of God versus the ways of the world, the kingdom of the world. So we see the opposition between these two kingdoms, right? It's not Jesus paints this in really stark contrast so that we can see it. He gives future promises for those who enter into his grace, and he warns those who remain callous and worldly because they're in danger of judgment. Now, let's talk about blessing and woe a little bit more, just about what they mean. 
To be blessed, uh, does that mean an absence of struggle? (laughs) What do you think based off what we just read? No, no, as you can easily see, it does not mean an absence of struggle. It doesn't. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Uh, To be blessed is to be gifted and graced by God. To be gifted, graced by God. To be blessed is to live through the adversity, having that eternal perspective, excuse me, that the struggle's temporary, okay, and that your reward in heaven is great. So we must hear all these blessings in the context of God's grace over us, God's comfort to us. The blessing is an eternal one, not necessarily a temporal one. So this is a big picture item. Now, also, I need to say this about uh, blessings. This, this, this section of Scripture isn't necessarily glorifying poverty and suffering as an end in itself, okay? Please hear that strongly. It's saying that there are afflictions to bearing the gospel and to practicing your faith, okay? To be blessed is to suffer in a specific gospel-centric way, not because you brought it on yourself, not because of any other means, okay? To be blessed isn't about suffering in general. This is suffering related to the call of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Are you blessed in the way Jesus describes here? Or are you in woe? And some of you might be, I don't know. Uh, The woes, uh, moving to that, this is from the prophetic tradition, and it's unique to Luke's gospel, this section. Woe is kind of like saying, alas, or how how terrible. It's one of those two. How terrible for the rich. Oh, alas, to be full. Uh, It's an expression of regret and compassion, the way one author describes it, and that's pretty good. It draws attention to coming judgment if folks don't mend their ways. So there's a prophetic sifting that's going on here. The woes are supposed to kind of shake things up and cause unrest in complacent souls. And the woes revolve around the complacency that accompanies self-sufficiency, which is positively fatal to our spiritual growth. So just like the prophets of old who sought to spurn people's consciences to choice, Jesus is doing the same thing here. Woes are an invitation to do what, do you think? To what? Slow down. Yes. What else? Repent. Repent. Yes. The woes are an invitation to repentance, to change, to do that 180, right? Jesus wants people to avoid condemnation by repenting and leaving the kingdom of the world and joining the kingdom of God, which means making very different choices about their wealth, their resources, their time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully, they'll put their material resources at the service of the community and the work of the kingdom of God when they meet these challenges. So it is an opportunity to choose differently and to repent. Jesus sometimes, I mean, how often does he use this kind of shock therapy to kind of, whoa, wake people up, right? He's trying to awaken them. It's like an ice bath. Jesus often through these ice baths on people, it's meant to awaken them, not to be cruel, but to awaken them to repentance and to change, okay? Now, here's the good news, at least for me it was. Uh, this passage, I didn't really have to go, what questions should we kind of camp on here at the end of this sermon? Uh, I feel like this passage just is pretty straightforward and direct and simple, and the questions to me felt kind of obvious. I hope they feel obvious to you, too. Firstly, where did Jesus' words strike you? I mean, you should have some response here, one way or the other. You shouldn't just read this and go, eh, you know? It doesn't really allow that response. So do you find them a comfort, or do you find them 
an ice bath? How do they sift you out, right? Which kingdom do you live in? Let's put it that way. Which kingdom are you a part of based off this description? Are you a kingdom of God or are you in the kingdom of the world? So where did Jesus' words strike you? And to get more specific, uh, even as did you hear in the readings just preceding this, uh, in the psalm and in Jeremiah, there's this sense of there's two paths here. There's two paths. Well, there's two paths here in this uh, particular passage in Luke. And they beg these questions. How much is the world in you and with you? How much is the world in you? How much is it with you? Are you in woe? Do you find yourself in woe when you hear these passages, this passage? Or... Do you sacrifice for his name's sake? Are you blessed for the reasons Jesus describes? Do you feel that? So are you in woe or are you blessed in the way Jesus describes? And if you're blessed, if so, he admonishes us to rejoice and take heart for yours is the kingdom of God. Okay. So we'll conclude here. I'm going to read you these blessings and woes assembled as I have. Uh, I want you to hear them from Peterson's The Message. Because this may give you kind of a fresh take, a fresh perspective. So let's end here, okay? Okay. So you're blessed when you lost it all. <laughs> God's kingdom is there for the finding. But it's trouble ahead if you think you've made it. What you have is all you'll ever get. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry. Then you're ready for the next messianic meal. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for long. You're blessed when the tears flow freely. Joy comes with the morning. And it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games. There's suffering to be met, and you're going to meet it. Count yourself blessed every time someone cuts you down or throws you out, every time someone smears or blackens your name to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and that person is uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Skip like a lamb if you'd like, for even though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My preachers and witnesses have always been treated like this. It's an old story, isn't it? There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true, not popular. Let's pray.